So we've, a few weeks ago, launched a series uh, called Jesus for Everyone, and we're going to be studying through the book of Luke and the book of Acts um, in this series. And, and uh, one of the things that you'll notice um, is that Luke, a lot of times, will, will intentionally uh, pair women and men together as he tells uh, his gospel account. And by doing so, it's this just incredible way to show that Jesus is for everyone, that there is not a person that, that the good news uh, is, seeks to go out to. Um, one of the things that you'll notice, too, is that you open up the New Testament, and you'll see what are called the synoptic gospels. Those are three out of the four gospels. Those three are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they, they mirror each other in so many different ways. A lot of um, the, the prevailing understanding is that Mark first wrote his gospel account, and then Matthew and Luke used his stories to play off of and to tell their own gospel account. Um, it's the same gospel, it's the same stories about Jesus, but also see from their understanding and perspective as they went around and talked to uh, the different believers of the first century church. Here's what you'll notice in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The openings of their gospel narratives all seem to have the same elements that they start off their gospel accounts with. You'll see it come up on the screen here that, um, that you'll see that it starts with the baptism of Jesus. Uh, you'll see that it goes to the time where Jesus is out of the baptism and goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, he's tempted uh, by the devil. And then when he comes out of that space, there is a gospel announcement that happens in the region of Galilee. And then after that gospel announcement that takes place, then he calls his disciples. Each of those three synoptic gospels tell that, have the, those same elements in play. And all three share elements for how they write about this gospel announcement. The elements that you see on display in, this, in the start here in Galilee is that, the, that there's an announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a call to repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. Part of this gospel announcement is that there's healing and there's deliverance that's taking place in the region of Galilee. And then you also see Jesus teaching in the synagogues. So all, all three of the Synoptic Gospels have that start uh, to their accounts, but Luke is the only one that zooms in and tells the story of Jesus entering a synagogue in his hometown called Nazareth, which is a part of the region of Galilee. There he opens a scroll and reads from the prophet Isaiah. Before we, we, we read this story, I want to remind you, Luke gives us theology through narrative. He's given us an understanding of what is the gospel but he's not going to say it like a dictionary entrance. He's not going to just have it where it says gospel and then begins to explain a definition for us. Maybe, you know, for us in our culture, that video that we played might, makes a lot of sense for us, that it is this explanation that's given, that we can sit down and we can learn, okay, that is a very thorough, um, eloquent teaching of what the gospel is. Luke doesn't approach things that way. Instead, if you were to ask Luke, Luke, can you tell us or give us a definition of the word gospel? He would likely respond, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And then from that story, we're meant to understand his understanding of gospel. 
Here's how Luke's story goes. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of the Isaiah prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Then at that time, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture that you have just, been, you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Here... Luke tells the story of Jesus preaching the good news, the gospel. It's for the captives. It's for the poor. It's for the blind. It's for the oppressed. And here in this synagogue in Nazareth, everyone is stoked. They're thrilled to hear this. They see themselves in this list. You can imagine there in the midst of this synagogue, there's the poor person, and Jesus reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, and they're thinking, yes! The blind person in the room hearing the words of Jesus to to bring sight to the blind, and they're likely thinking, yes! The captive and the oppressed in the room, which would be every single one of them, Because when they look outside the doors of the synagogue, they would see Roman occupation. They would hear the words of Jesus, and they would think, yes, the good news has arrived here in Nazareth. And they would be right to think that. They would be right to think, as their imaginations are stirred towards hope, that this announcement is for them. Jesus truly has come for them. The trouble is, Jesus didn't stop here. He could have stopped here. He could have stopped in this place. He sits down, and as we're told by Luke, everyone is amazed and excited about him. Everyone is thrilled. This is Jesus. They saw him as a toddler. They saw him as a teenager. There are likely grandmas in this synagogue beaming, thinking, there's our little Jesus. He's the hometown kid. And everyone, you just imagine that the the, the men in the room, the grandpas in the room are patting him on the back as as he sits down next to them. They're looking at them. Maybe Mary is just filled with with, with pride and joy as as Jesus sits down. What Luke emphasizes over and over again in this is everyone was so excited and pleased about Jesus. The temptation would be to stop there. Jesus has momentum. 
Everyone's excited about this gospel announcement. But he pushes in further. Things take a sudden turn because there's more that the synagogue needs to understand about the gospel. So again, Luke, through story, will tell us there is more that you need to understand if you are really going to understand this good news. Let's go further in the story. Then he, Jesus, said, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was, in, he was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one he healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Suddenly, this announcement of good news became challenging news for the synagogue. Again, Jesus could have stopped in that place where they were excited, but he pushes in further. And what Jesus first does is that he, equ he equates himself to being a hometown prophet and the challenge it will create specifically for the region of Nazareth. Hometown means that there's a certain expectation that would creep into the hearts of the townspeople. He sides with us. He's one of us. Jesus is for us specifically. And we can understand this about a hometown prophet not being accepted because the expectation is the hometown prophet would very likely sway in their allegiance for the people that they grew up with, right? We have rules at play in our society that tell us that people in authority, they're going to make verdicts or even going to maybe operate on someone, that they would not be allowed to reign over or to rule or to make a verdict for their own family members. I would love it. I don't know why I would end up in, jail or in courts, but I would love it if I found myself in court and I looked up and the judge was my mom. <laughs> the reason I would be filled with expectancy is that I would have this belief in my heart that says, my mom has more allegiance to me than she does the law right? In sports, there's what's called a home whistle. It's this place of understanding that the refs, because of all the cheering and the peer pressure of the crowds around them, are more likely to rule in favor of the home team. The home team usually gets the good whistle. Some of us 
sorry to say, sometime soon are going to get a juror notice in our mail. And we're going to get summoned to jury duty. And as we sit there, we are going to be questioned. And the reason that we are going to be questioned is because it is try, we are it's trying to be determined what kind of bias, biases do you have? Will you likely be too lenient or too harsh for the defendant? Because we all understand this idea of the hometown person. Let me push us a little further because Jesus is pushing us here in this story. We have an expectation that the politicians that we elect will be more favorable to us than to others. There is tension in these words, hometown prophet, because a decision has to be made. Which one is more important? Is it the hometown or is it the prophet? And Jesus is standing in front of Nazareth, and he's telling them, you're likely going to have me quote this proverb that says, physician, heal yourself. And baked into those words are this understanding. When we say yourself, we mean us. We mean physician, care more about us. Physician, heal yourself. We are a part of you. And you've got to understand in an ancient Near East culture that individualization, hyper-individualization like in America doesn't exist in the same way. That the community and the family is everything. And so for Jesus to stand up and to further tell this story would be challenging to them. Wait a minute. What do you mean that the Lord's favor is going to be shown to a Phoenician widow and a Syrian general. This is what Jesus does. He talks about the widow and the general. The widow and the general. I'm going to bring back up the, the or Karen's going to bring back up on for me the, the chart that we have had. And in this chart, what you'll see is about 34 examples in which uh, Luke, when he writes Luke and Acts, he intentionally, he intentionally pairs women and men together. Again, as a way to show that Jesus truly is for everyone. And some of the examples that you'll see on here is that there's general stories in which Luke pairs men and women together. For example, the story of Zechariah and Mary at the beginning of his gospel account. There is the story in Macedonia in the book of Acts about there's a Philippian jailer and there's Lydia. Those stories intentionally paired together. When Jesus goes out into to Galilee and on his way to Jerusalem, the healing stories that happen, Peter's mother-in-law and a possessed man are healed. There's a possessed man and there's Jairus' daughter and a woman. And so there you see these pairings that take place together. In the book of Acts, you see Ananias and Dorcas that are paired together in this move of healing. When Jesus tells parables, Luke pairs women and, and, uh, women and men together. Men, a man plants a seed and a woman uses yeast in this, these pairing parables that Jesus tells. And when Jesus teaches, Luke makes sure to highlight so often that when Jesus teaches, that Jesus will pair together a woman and a man in the stories that he's telling. So Jesus, here in front of Nazareth, tells this story, and he says there was a Phoenician 
widow, and there is a Syrian general. And by highlighting that Jesus uses them as an example, Luke is teaching us that the gospel isn't just for the hometown. The gospel, when we hear and embrace the news, the good news about Jesus, it isn't just a story of Jesus and me. But to get our arms around the gospel is to understand that the gospel is for everyone and that that shapes my posture for how I embrace the gospel. Baked into the good news that Jesus is for you has to be a heart posture that also understands Jesus is for everyone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little quote from N.T. Wright's commentary on this section in the book of Luke. And I'm going to read this because, honestly, I didn't want to read it. <laughs> I, came, I came across this quote from N.T. Wright as I was studying this week, and I thought, that's too far. I was offended, and I was, I was like, there's no way I can read that to people because it is very offensive. <laughs> and then I decided if I had to wrestle with it this week, then I want you to wrestle with it this week. <laughs> it's challenging. This is what N.T. Wright wrote. His hearers were after all, waiting for God to liberate Israel from pagan enemies. In several Jewish texts of this time, we find a longing that God would condemn the wicked nations, would pour out wrath and destruction on them. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that when the great prophets were active, it wasn't Israel who benefited but only the pagans. That's like someone in Britain or France during the Second World War speaking of God's healing and restoration for Adolf Hitler. It is not what people wanted to hear. Jesus stands in front of Galilee, of the Nazarites, of the Nazarenes, and, and he tells them, when Elijah and Elisha were prophets. The people that they went to were a foreign widow and an enemy general. That's Luke telling us what the gospel's about. You want to know what the gospel is about? It's about the great prophets of Israel going after enemies and healing them. This good news isn't just for the hometown, it's for everyone. We celebrate the news of sinners being forgiven. We hear that God is caring for the poor and the captives and the blind. And we celebrate, yes, because we see ourselves in that list. Then subtly, and maybe not so subtly, the Spirit of God tugs on our hearts and, and, and teaches us 
If I'm for you in that way, then I'm going to be for everyone in that way. You need, if you're going to understand the gospel, you need to be able to understand and embrace the extent that it goes to. Because when you do, you will realize just how much God is for you. Jesus is for outsiders. And we think, yes, because we're outsiders. I am a recipient of God's loving kindness, but then I realize that there are people who are outsiders to me. And then I'm stopped and I'm challenged by the news that Jesus is for outsiders. We tell our boys and we teach our boys, there is always enough to share. And usually when we tell them that is when they're fighting over how much lemonade was poured in one another's cup. Just even the smallest teaspoon more, they look at one another and compare, did I get as much as you? And Larissa always responds to them, boys, there is always enough food to share. And I stand in the distance shaking my head, yes. And then we're out to lunch. And when we're out to lunch, they look at me and they ask, can I have a bite of your cheeseburger? And then I think, no, not like that. There's not enough to share. See, I'm good with the teaching until it costs me something. And we're good with the profit. until they give a word about our own hearts. Jesus is for outsiders. And this is the same lesson God was teaching his people through the story of Jonah. Jonah was a smart man. He was a smart man. And when he received a calling from God to preach a word of judgment against the capital city of an enemy, oppressive nation, Jonah knew the extent of God's character. And so this is, but rather than preaching that word, Jonah ran away. And why did he run away? Because he understands who God is. And this is what he tells God at the end of the story. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah, listen to these words again. Jonah uses these words as an accusation, not praise for God. These would be words that are, would fill our worship songs. These would be words that we, that we regularly sing. Jonah doesn't use them as this great act of praise. He uses them as a word to confront God. I knew. I knew it. You're merciful. I knew it. You're compassionate. I knew it. You're slow to get angry. I knew it. You're filled with unfailing love. 
How dare you be so eager to turn back from destroying people? That's why I ran away. If we really, really, really embrace that God is for outsiders, then that radically changes who I am called to care about. But Luke tells us the story so that we would understand a definition of the gospel. This is what good news is. What does this practically mean for us? How do we practically live this out as a community and in our own individual lives? I'll give you three things. One is a constant understanding that our lives rotate around Jesus and not the other way around. There's a story at the, book, at the start of the book of Joshua. Joshua is about to start conquering the nations in the land of Cana. But before he does, a mysterious man appears before Joshua. Here's what the account sounds like. This was when Joshua was near the town of Jericho, the town that is about to be destroyed. Right? Listen, Israel, the context here, Israel thinks, like, and they are, they're, they're being used as God's instrument to, to announce judgment against these nations who have been acting in absolutely wicked and oppressive ways. And so there's this, you would think that if you're going to be used as this tool of judgment, that there's something righteous about you. There's something that is, is like, yes, I'm good, they're not. That's the context. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. And I think that that is such a good word for us to constantly remember when we ask Jesus, Which side are you on? Come on, you agree more with me in this Twitter debate, don't you? You agree more with me than you do my brother, right? You're on my side. You're on my side. And I think it would be good for us to hear Jesus, or the commander of the Lord's army, when he responds. Are you friend or foe? Neither one. What he's saying there is this. You don't join my side. I join your side, God. That's the call. It's not this place of where, Jesus, are you on my side, but it's this constant point of surrender where we say, God, I am on your side. I seek to join you where you're at. The next thing that I would say as a practical application for us is that we are constantly to live with a kingdom mindset. We've been using the language of mapping on in this sermon series. And what we've meant by that is that you remember like looking at science books and, and, or geography books 
and you have the base map and then you have that clearer map that sits on top of it and then another layered map that you put on top of it. That's kind of the language that I want, or the image that I want to have in your mind as you hear this word mapping on, is that you have the gospel account, the story of Jesus. That is the foundation. We see Jesus interact with crowds, we see his teachings, we see his parables, we see him anointed by the Holy Spirit, we see him going out in all these regions and caring for the oppressed and the captive and the blind and the poor. And then the book of Acts is like maps on top of that. And what you actually see is that the disciples' lives map on to the same things that, was ha that were happening in the life of Jesus. They begin to teach the same things that Jesus teaches. They begin to act in the same way. They begin to heal in the same way that he does. They begin to interact with the poor and the blind and the oppressed and the captive the same way that Jesus does. And then the invitation for us is then to map our own lives on top of that. That we are meant to act in the same way that a faithful following of Jesus is like a life that is mapped on to the experiences and the teachings of Jesus. So what does that mean with having a kingdom mindset? Well, one of Luke's favorite pictures to present to us is of a new and unified humanity. Jesus stands in front of Nazareth and he tells us, this is what the gospel of the kingdom is like. It is like Israelites, Phoenician women, and Syrian generals all equally standing before me. And then the book of Acts maps on that same lesson where the followers of Jesus sit down together at a shared table where you have Israel, Israelites and Roman centurions where you have masters and slaves sitting at the same table with one another. It gets mapped onto that. And the invitation to our lives as a community is to map onto that same story. That we would be a people with this mindset. That what we long to cultivate amongst us is a people that are wildly different, but coming together under the name of Jesus. Recently, at my son's um, soccer game, I was talking with a another church uh, pastor in, in the area, and he was, um, he was just talking about his church community, how things have been going, and uh, just kind of, we were just sharing life together, and he started talking about the demographics of, of his church community, um, what, what's just kind of being built together there by the Lord, and then he asked me, the, the, kind of the dem what are kind of like the demographics like of, of your community? And I paused, and, and one of the descriptors that I gave is I said, you know, there's a good amount of people that are in later career and retirement age. And he was floored. He was floored by that because he looked at me and he saw I'm a young pastor and to have a community where there are a good amount of people that are older than me, it's an anomaly. It's not, it's not a normal thing for, for a community to have that. And it became, for him, it was like this point of, like, jealousy. <laughs> and, but he, he honestly said, man, we long to see some older people in our community. 
Can I tell you that that is a normal experience that I have when I talk with pastors and church leaders? That there's something about the way that the Spirit of God is moving amongst His church that He is, he is pushing us towards having communities that look like the kingdom of heaven. There is a longing across so many pastors' hearts that I've interacted with them to see communities built where, where there is diversity, not only of like ethnicity and culture, but in age, that there would be diversity amongst us because, again, what we're hoping to see is that Jesus is mapping on in our own experiences what, he's, what he sets in motion. When he teaches the gospel, core to Jesus teaching the gospel to his hometown is to show a story of a foreign widow and an enemy general being welcomed in. And that's what we seek to cultivate. And practically speaking, what I would say for us is that we are constantly looking in our own lives to develop and cultivate relationship with people that are not like us. Constantly seeking to develop what it looks like to be in relationship with people that are different ages than us, come from different cultures than us, so that we might understand that, that, that because, that's, because that's our understanding of what the gospel is all about, is this new and unified humanity this new and built-together people. And, and I'll also say, practically speaking, that's why we have been pushing and pushing so hard emotionally healthy discipleship. Because so built into that is this place of saying, we want to have a foundation where we have healthy relationships with one another. So we know what it's like to be a people that actively listen to one another, to hear one another's story, and to actually work through the tensions and, and the difficulties of life, to work through our points of grief and sorrow and loss, to work through all of the relational dynamics that are at play, because we realize that if God is going to build a new and united humanity amongst us, then we are going to be a people that are actually able to arrive in a space of health with one another. The next thing that I would say, what does this practically look like for us, is that we would live faithfully present. I am thrilled about what's for head, ahead for us as a community. Because of what we've been doing together as a pastoral team and my conversations with Larissa, we've we're, we're, we're looking to develop a lot of opportunities for us to serve shoulder to shoulder together as a community. We're actually looking, I just reached out to a community um, that's called We See You San Diego. They just got back to me this past week. We don't have a date settled in, but they serve about 150 to 200 homeless uh, people every single Tuesday. And I've been in conversation with them, with them about what would it look like for us as faith community to host one of those nights. And just because they're right down here, I think in Mission Valley or on the edge of Mission Valley in Linda Vista. And just because I, I really believe that, that what you see is Jesus stands in front of his hometown here in Nazareth. He says, the spirit of God is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, to set the captive free. 
And, and if we're, we're going to be a people that are about the gospel, then I think that what it looks like for us is to be faithfully present in our neighborhoods. And so part of uh, this activity that's going to be taking place, I can tell you that that's going to likely happen in June, and then in July we're likely going to be working with Hope for San Diego. They have their uh, We Serve San Diego weekend that they do in, 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 uh, in the middle of July. But what we're also hoping to do is that this would instigate conversations amongst us, and we would love to resource those conversations that begin to happen amongst us. Of what would it look like for you to be faithfully present in your neighborhood? What would it look like for all of us to, to recognize, man, we are pastors and shepherds and ministers of the streets that we live on. And that we would look and we would love to resource and host and develop those conversations with you. What does it look like to be a people that are faithfully present in our neighborhoods? Luke goes out of his way to emphasize with great language, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. And the opening words as he opens the, prop, the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, is to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And there in that language, what you find is the Holy Spirit is powerfully upon a people who are carrying this good news out into their streets, carrying this good news into their neighborhoods. And so I'm, I am absolutely thrilled about beginning again, to engage. And we've been doing this pretty regularly here, but, but again, engage these conversations of what does it look like to be faithfully present in the spaces that we live. And that's why right now in the foyer, we, for Mother's Day, to be able to celebrate Mother's Day, let's say, hey, let's take care of the moms in San Diego, those that can't afford diapers. You know, we we're collecting diapers today because it's this idea of saying, what does it look like to be faithfully present because when Luke tells the story of the gospel, he tells the story by Jesus standing in front of his hometown and saying, it's about caring for people. It's about caring for people. If Nathan and Tony would come back up. I want to end with this really just, for me, really fun observation that takes place here in the book of Luke. I told you that part of this, when we launched this series, is just be about nerding out on Scripture together. And I want to do that here in this, this, this quick observation. Right before this story is the story of Jesus going into the wilderness. And at the end of his wilderness story, it says that the devil took Jesus to, took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you were the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands. So you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So there in the story right before this one, the devil takes Jesus to a high place and says, jump off the cliff, jump off the edge. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. But then here in this story, the very story right after, here's what you read at the end of the story. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him, forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They, intend him to push, they intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Luke intentionally pairs these stories together. It seems as Luke is connecting these two moments. And maybe it's a way to affirm that the Father is protecting Jesus as he preaches a really tough word. 
Your hometown may be rejecting you, but I am affirming you. It also could be that what the devil is attempting Jesus to do is to make the story about himself. Jesus, advertise yourself. Prioritize yourself. You jump off. You make it about you. There will be a spotlight on you, man. That story will go everywhere. Jesus jumped off a cliff or jumped off off of the... Uh, temple in Jerusalem, and, and he was protected. He didn't even have a scratch on him. And Jesus gets up and, and maybe wipes himself off and says, see, I am the Son of God. Right? In that way, it would have been, the spotlight would have been on Jesus. But in this story, where he's on the edge of a cliff, Jesus' focus is all about others. Jesus' focus is, is about the people that are actually seeking to throw him off the cliff. It's a way for us to, sh- to, to observe that Jesus came to serve and not be served. And it's with this kind of posture that we see the Father's favor upon him. It's a posture that says it's about others that we see that God's favor and protection is upon Jesus. The Lord's favor is upon a people who seek to love and serve others. The Spirit of God is upon a people whose posture in their life is an understanding that the gospel isn't just Jesus and me, but it's about Jesus for the outsiders in my own life. That's who the Spirit of God is upon. Church, would you stand?